What happens when two bass road warriors spend quality time talking music and life with one of their peers? Bassist educator author David C. Gross and bassist and head honcho of KnowYourBassPlayer.com, Tom Semioli, trade eights with the legends of rock, jazz, funk, blues, folk, country, and more. Notes from an artist. Revealing conversations with the legends who've created the soundtrack of our lives. What happens? You're about to find out. It's another episode of Notes from an Artist. There he is, and we're looking up at Paul Rizzo, David. Well, it looks to me like he's in, got a seatbelt on. I guess he figures that we're a scary bunch, and he needs to be <laughs> seatbelted in so that nothing goes wrong. I well, no, New Jersey law requires that if I'm driving in a car, I need a seatbelt. Ah, of, of course, of course. I think that's a federal law, isn't it, David? Um, yeah, it is a federal law. But the other thing is my phone doesn't even seem to be working with this, so I'm parked in a parking lot with my iPad. Oh, <laughs> we'll be short and sweet, uh, Paul Rizzo. But uh, welcome to Cygnus Radio, and we're talking to Paul Rizzo, the head honcho at the bitter end, the man, the Svengali, the historian, the booker, the owner. Tell us, I mean, it's uh, we're going to be there on October 5th. Wednesday, October 5th, David, we're going to be doing the best of the bitter end. It's a Wednesday. We'll be there. Yes, Doors is. open at 7.30. Some of our esteemed performers will be Lorraine Leckie, Emily Fremgen, Chris Barardo with his long blonde locks, Puma pearl with her black lock uh don black cat soul cake and some other surprise guests but what we are fascinated with paul and, and i've been watching your videos on youtube is the amazing history of the bitter end which actually started off as the cock and bull in the 1950s yes correct yes it was okay. owned by uh manny uh roth i believe who owns cafe who owned cafe Wa and other places in the area right and fred weintraub actually started the bitter end as the bitter end was it 1960 or 61 because my t-shirt says 1960 but it was 1961 one the t-shirt the earlier t-shirts were made prior to my arrival in era so. <laughs> okay so david i have a collector's item you have a dated shirt that's for sure <laughs> no, pun, no pun intended <laughs> the history of the bitter end i mean when you look at uh, all the performers who were there from neil diamond bob dylan uh my gosh george carlin it really is uh, an important part of the history of new york especially given the fact that many clubs of that era are no longer with us you've been listening to neil diamond doing girl you'll be a woman soon followed up by maggie's farm bob dylan and we ended with a little skit save the planet by george carlin this is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Uh, yeah, it's a chunk of history. Uh, there's a couple of places that are still around that have some history, but we're one of the few, I guess, left. Of course, I see it. I almost see the, the Village Vanguard, really, and the, and the Bitter End is the two last real remaining clubs that go back to the 50s. And, of course, the, the Village Vanguard goes back to the 1930s. Well, you also have the Apollo. was a very popular sure. space. That's I true. Mean, I, I know yes. it's a bigger space, but it's, and it's not... A, like equivalent in size cafe wa has been around for a while as well you got to give them credit for their history as well sure because manny owned both and he closed cock and bull to concentrate on cafe wa i think i mean there are a couple of spaces still around that still hold there are some spaces that don't necessarily just do music that i'm sure are still around in brooklyn and some of the other like they brought back king's theater and some of those other spaces the coldest night in 1974 was in february and sandy denny was playing the bitter end and i and a couple of friends went from the upper west side down to the bitter end we watched the show she came out to the entire show and then came out and talked to her to 
me, I would say outside of me playing there a million and one times, the best show I saw was Sandy Denny at the Bitter End. Nice. I'm glad you enjoyed yourself. That's what we're about. That was Who Knows Where the Time Goes, Fairport Convention featuring not only Richard Thompson, great guitar player, but the beautiful voice of Sandy Denny. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Now, the bitter end became the other end for a couple of years. What uh, What was that? Uh, that was ni- in the 1970s, yes? Yes. Well, Paul Colby was managing the bitter end. He opened up a place next door called The Other End. It had a restaurant. It had a smaller acoustic stage. Uh, I actually believe that that's the room that Dylan started seeing uh, and forming the Rolling Thunder. That was It Ain't Me, Babe. Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder Review. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. And later on, it became the Rock and Roll Cafe, if I'm not mistaken, correct? Well, what happened was the other end, Paul expanded into both spaces when Fred left to go west in 69 or 70. Okay. And took over both spaces and became, both spaces became the other end. And the other end, the space, the bitter end didn't get a liquor license till 1973. So it was a coffee shop or, you know, they were all coffee shops back then, but it was a coffee shop until 73. So Paul had a liquor license next door with the other end. So he was able to bring or do liquor in sort of both spaces. And then he got the license in 73 and they started, it was the other end until I think 1984. Okay. And then they took the name back. And at that time, I think Pat Kenny got involved buying out the other two partners that Paul had at the other end and then went forward from there. I'm not sure if it was the early 80s that Pat got involved, but I know he was involved in the 80s. So. Right, right. And and one of the one of the real things about the bitter end that makes it so special is, yes, you can reach out and touch the artist because it's such an intimate venue. It's also a very challenging room to play because you have people all around. So, well, Billy, Billy Crystal in an interview said that playing the club, which was like one of the first places, you know, he was he was sort of discovered there playing the club prepared him for bigger stages because he had to he had to appeal to the he had to turn to the bar right he had to turn so you you weren't just playing straight out as a comic you learned to play in all directions so when he played bigger stages he said he was it helped him that he had to do that at the bitter ends because most of the comedy places you'll do it'll just be a small stage out to the audience so he said he, he honed his craft as it were that you have people all around that was it ain't me babe Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder Review. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. That was Billy Crystal in 1977 doing a part of his stand-up routine. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. I think it's the most fun venue to play in New York City, but it is also the most challenging. It's also the most difficult because of that. But what you've done, Paul, is you've actually made it sound good. Uh, you can literally hear wonderfully whether you're looking straight at the audience or if you're at the bar or if you're on the other side. Oh, yeah. 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 Well, we put a lot of there's a lot of monitors on stage. So as far as the musicians go, I mean, there's a lot of wedges. There's probably more monitors on stage than all. OK. And the way the room is situated and built, the monitor sound also affects the room sound because there's the reflection off that back wall that throws a lot of sound back out to the audience. So that's why it really is more of a challenge for my sound engineers to learn the room and learn that slap back from the monitors. Because when I have someone else usually coming in and mixing the room, a lot of times they're really only mixing the monitor sound. They're sitting in the middle of the room and that's what they're hearing. They're not really paying attention to the mains because they're not. So, so it's weird. I had some 
guys sit in the other day and mix some sound. And it's not that he did a bad job mixing. He just, it was, they don't know the limits that they can push certain instruments and they don't know the cap that you can push. So you'd be, you'll be hesitant because you don't want to get feedback as an outside mixer, right? So right. it sounded okay. It was, it was a very, how do I say, generic mix. It didn't sound bad, but it didn't sound like it's everything sounded level and, and, you know, you were able to hear everything. But when the guys that worked there on a regular basis who have owned some craft on, on the sound, they can pop that guitar solo or they can bring the piano up over everything where it's supposed to be. And it's, 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 that's the hardest. I think that's the hardest part of the room to worry about that feedback and stuff like that. That was a little trip down memory lane with four different tracks all performed live and recorded live at the bitter end. The first was If There's a Hell Below, We're All Gonna Go, Curtis Mayfield. Then we had Randy Newman from his classic Live at the Bitter End album, a tune called Living Without You, followed by The Ghetto, Donny Hathaway, and we ended with Richie Havens doing Handsome Johnny from an actual live TV performance that Fred Weintraub in 1967 had the good sense to have on TV. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Now, the bitter end was in danger in the 1990s, wasn't it? Didn't it almost close or wasn't there before it was a landmark status before the, the city declared what it a landmark? Was, what happened was Paul, Paul sold the building. Okay. And, uh, the building needed a lot of work. Paul didn't have the, I don't know why he sold, but he sold the building and he sold it to, uh, to Gibraltar management. I think it was one of their early buildings that they bought. They own a lot of buildings now, but so they took over the building and Paul cut a deal with them to have to pay less, but to do a good deal with the club. And then in 1990 or 89, they wanted a market adjustment on the rent. So they actually got the fire department involved and saying that there was a certain floor plan that was in the office that should have been in the club. And they threatened to shut us down. And Paul did all these fundraisers to, to for legal fees, I think. Uh, yeah, Klein and uh, who else was involved with that? George Carlin, Robert Klein. Uh, I think Judy Collins did something. I think Richie Havens did, you know, a bunch of guys. People came back and did some shows, and then the landlord basically backed off. All they wanted was a rent adjustment. So they got their rent adjustment, which was probably, I feel, they're, they're, they're very fair people, and they're very... They were great during the pandemic, and but eventually, you know, business is business. They're going to have to get back up to a certain point, and I can see that as being really the only thing that would probably stop the continuation of the club is the non-affordability of the operations. Now, that was an appropriate tune. It's called Dear Landlord, and it's by Joe Cocker. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Going back to whenever that happened, I think in the late 90s, I mean, New York City was in crisis then. That was during the Dinkins years and didn't look like New York City was going to come back. It was not a good time. Well, you know something, if they made it through the 70s, which I thought was probably <laughs> what a lot of people are now comparing the city to, right, as far as the danger aspect and but. But it's a lot different than it used to be because there were no cell phones then. So you couldn't even have, you know, you're walking through the streets and you're on your own. And yes. it was very different than it is now. And I, we got through that. I think that financially, I think Bloomberg was great, even though he had to raise real estate taxes 33% or whatever after the 9-11 incident or whatever happens. You know, the city has gone through a lot of action and they're eventually going to bounce back where it lands and where it ends up being. Will it be like it was in the past. Not sure about that. Yeah. Will people start coming back to work? Not sure about that. I feel there's going to be some sort of hybrid working situation where people are going to work from home and eventually go to the four-day work week. So Thursday nights will become Friday nights and that type of stuff. But that's down the line. It's coming back, sort of. That was Ace Freely, back in the New York groove. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. 
commercially, I don't think it's coming back yet. People are living here, you know, young kids come in. There's always going to be people who want to live in the city. And I think a lot of the money left the city. A lot of the people who went to like, you know, live out in the Hamptons and stuff like that. They stayed out and winterized their homes because they had to be out there for the pandemic. And they realized that it's, you know, it's a better existence out there. The hustle and bustle of the city. You bring up a very interesting topic. And David and I discuss this all the time, especially with New Yorkers, is that New York City is not really going to be a business center anymore because of digital technology. People can work remotely. And obviously, COVID accelerated that. Without that big money coming into New York City, for example, Goldman Sachs relocated to their headquarters to Florida, where it's more tax friendly. The city's going to need some help. The city's going to need some federal help to reposition itself, maybe as an urban renewal center, maybe as an art center. But it's not going to be the hustle bustle business New York City that you and I and David all grew up in. Because the technology has changed that forever. And and capitalism being what it is, they're always going to opt for cheaper operating costs, which means working remotely. And of course, as we all know, transferring jobs overseas. So I mean, I, these feel, are, that, you know. I feel the city will adjust. I don't think the, yeah. city, the city will collapse. You have Google took over that whole area across. Um, they, they have that building across the street from the, uh, the Chelsea Market down on Ninth Avenue. They built that new building over by um, on the West Side Highway by Clarkson. I don't know if, if you drive in that area at all. Yes, yeah, I, I do. do. Yes. Yeah. So they knocked down that hole, what used to be the bridge, you know, on Houston before you get to the highway. And they knocked all that down. They built a humongous building over there. Um, what, uh, Amazon or someone took over Lord, uh, Lord and Taylor. Right. Yes. So, so, so there, there, there's going to be stuff coming in. Yes, yeah. there's going to be. Will it be exactly the same? No, you're not going to have the same, you know, millions of people in Midtown. You're not going to have right. that McDonald's and Rockefeller Center, which used to be like the busiest McDonald's in the world. Sure, they're not gonna, that's not going to happen anymore. That was ACDC doing Safe in New York City. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Well, the music scene in the city is now like L.A. It's not like concentrated, like when you guys, like you said, oh, you came from the Upper West Side to come down to the village. That right. was one of the only places you could go. I mean, it wasn't a lot of places to go see music back then. It was concentrated in certain areas. And then in the 80s and 90s, you had a nice boom over in Alphabet City. You know, you had brownies and all these other places that popped up. Right. And that right. started the sidewalk. Yeah. Yeah. And you had all that stuff. But you also had the only scene in Brooklyn really was Lemoore's, right? It was always that had that was that was there. That heavy metal scene and all that stuff, which was an amazing scene at the time, was always there. That aspect is there's so much music scene now. There's Williamsburg, there's there's Long Island City, there's Astoria, there's all the, the places that have popped up in Harlem, like Shine and all those places. There's Jersey City, there's there's all these areas that are other that do what we do. And so we're not necessarily able to really bring them all in like that anymore because the boroughs are where when I started in that in the village, I was there like 30 years ago. I started in the 90s myself. I started at Kenny's actually in 88. The village was an affordable place where musicians lived. And then the scene moved to Alphabet City because a lot of the musicians moved to Alphabet City. Right. Then they moved to Brooklyn. So a lot of those the good nurturing scenes where you hear about, you know, all oh, the, the jams, the late night jams that's happening in Brooklyn because that's where all the musicians are. Because right. that's, you know, they're near their home. Beastie Boys, No Sleep Till Brooklyn. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. Sacred Ground, David, 147 Bleaker. Okay, Paul. Thanks all for right, talking guys. in the parking lot. Good to see you. We'll see you next Wednesday. 
Yep. See you next Wednesday. Thank you. So, folks, we've got about 30 minutes left, so I'm going to play you a bunch, a panoply of tunes that were recorded by artists who actually played at the Bitter End. So let's get started. We're just listening to four tunes that were played by artists who performed at the Bitter End. First up, Sunshine, Sunshine, which was a James Taylor tune off of his first album for Apple Records. Second track was Crosby, Stills, and Nash. David Crosby played the Bitter End, a tune called Guinevere. And there is a very cool version of that tune by Miles Davis on the Big Fun record. Next up, we had Karen Dalton doing Something on Your Mind. Now, Something on Your Mind was from her second album, and believe it or not, it was written by Dino Valenti of Quicksilver Messenger Service fame. And lastly, we heard Stephen Bishop doing On and On. This is Notes from an Artist on CygnusRadio.com. That was another great set of music by people who performed at the bitter end. We started with the great Jeffrey Gaines doing the Peter Gabriel tune, In Your Eyes, followed by Bill Withers doing Grandma's Hands, Stevie Wonder doing You've Got It Bad Girl, and the mega hit by Curtis Steiger's I Wonder Why. This is Notes from an Artist, and I want to thank Paul Rizzo, owner of The Bitter End, my co-host, head honcho of Know Your Bass player, Tom Semioli, and I want to invite all of you, October 5th, this coming Wednesday, we'll be at The Bitter End with the Notes from an Artist Orchestra doing a tribute of tunes performed by folks who played at The Bitter End. So we hope to see you. Also, if you are interested in listening to this show again or any of our previous shows, go to any of the major podcast players or any podcast player all over the world and you can get the notes from an artist podcast so until next week this is david gross and have a wonderful week and i hope we see you at the bitter end this is notes from an artist on cygnusradio.com have a great week and take care (laughs) 